So, this semester, our topic is gospel-driven relationships. Uh, the idea that the vertical, that our relationship with God, always connects to the horizontal, our relationship with other people. And um, we're going to see that explicitly here in chapter 2 of Ephesians. But I guess by way of review from last week, let me just say a couple things. First, I don't know about you, but I, when I became a Christian, um, I think I thought the point of the Bible was to tell me what to do. And a few years later, as I started to learn that there was such a thing as doctrine and theology, then I thought that the point of the Bible was to tell me how to make sure I was right and to point out where other people were wrong, right? Maybe some of you have been on a similar kind of journey. Um, but, but really, here's the, the point that took me a while to realize, but I think it's pretty obvious once you have eyes to see it. The point of the Bible is community. The point of the Bible is community. And it goes back even before the Bible starts. Because actually, the triune God, God is one, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in community from all eternity. God did not create because he was lonely. He was in perfect, loving community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from all eternity, and will be for all eternity going forward, right? And here's the thing. I think a lot of people, whether they've been around Christians or whether they're trying to figure out what Christianity is about, I think so many of us hear Christianity or a version of Christianity that's just a small little individual story about how to make sure I go to heaven when I die. Now, the Bible does speak about that, but that's not the point of the Bible either, actually, because that's just a little sliver of a much bigger story. The personal salvation story is not the big story that the Bible is about. Because God's point and God's purpose is not just to, to save individual souls. It is to build a community, a people. It's always been that way, and even though sin came in and made a mess of things, God is still about building a community. We read there in Revelation, Revelation talks about the beauty of this community from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's not a left turn. That's always been the goal to which God's story has been headed, right? God has always been about community. From all eternity, God created mankind to be in relationship with him, a holy nation of people belonging to God. And the heart of the Bible is what we call the covenant. The covenant is basically a promise that God has made, and it shows up over and over and over again in the Bible. And here's the basic covenant promise. Here it is. You ready? I will be your God and you will be my people. That, that's, see, that's bigger than just, if you accept Jesus into your heart, you go to heaven. But, you know, that, that phrase actually isn't even in the Bible. <laughs> but the covenant phrase, the covenant promise, is everywhere in the Bible. Because God, again, isn't out just to save individual souls who can kind of do their own individual thing. He's about 
making for himself a people who will belong to him, who will be known by his name. It's always been about that. You will be my people, plural. I will be your God, plural. I think so often we squeeze this community story into this individualistic westernized story, and it's unfortunate. Then we think of community as sort of like an optional thing, but it's not an optional thing. It's the central point of the Bible. And, And I think you need to see everything in the Bible with these new eyes, right? For example, let me just give you one example. Maybe you've never thought about this way. The Ten Commandments. How do they relate to community? Well, think of it this way. Think of the historical context. God's people have been brought out of Egypt, out of slavery. And God brings them to Mount Sinai. And then he starts the Ten Commandments this way. Do you remember how the Ten Commandments start? This is why I'm opposed to putting the Ten Commandments in your yard or on your courtroom if you don't start with the preamble. Because if you don't start with the preamble, you actually miss the point of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments starts this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage. Here's how you will stay free as a people. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. The Ten Commandments are ten conditions for community to flourish. This is how you're to be. You're to be a community that has its priorities right, that the Lord God is the one you worship, not idols who will further enslave you. I didn't save you from bondage to put you back into bondage with 10 rules. I'm telling you what you were made for. These are the 10 conditions for flourishing community. You're to be a community where your word can be trusted. So don't lie. You're to be a word where sexuality is to be practiced and honored in the ways that God has given it. So don't commit adultery. You're to be a community where human life is honored and valued because it's made in the image of God. Don't murder. And Jesus, of course, helps us to see that that means don't hate right? Because every one of the Ten Commandments is just kind of the most extreme example, but all the other commandments, Jesus said, hang on them, right? So these are ten conditions for community. They're not individual rules for you to try to memorize and live by. They're helpful for that, but if you see them in an individualistic way, you miss the point, right? So community is the point of the Bible, but community is also the point of the gospel, what Christians call the good news. And that's literally what that word means, good news. And for that, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you to notice all the plural language in this, in this chapter and how the salvation part at the beginning of the chapter is leading to an even bigger goal. And you might think, well, that's weird. I thought the biggest goal was to make sure I don't go to to hell when I die. There's an actual bigger goal than that. Ephesians 2 talks about it. Chapter 2, start at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your sins and transgressions, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh 
and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order, here's the purpose clause, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, and he has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility." He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now that's a grand vision, isn't it? That is a grand and glorious vision. And it starts with this. We need a rescue because we're in a mess, right? There's all kinds of things it says here about that. I don't have time to go into it in depth, but notice this. We are both under God's condemnation, rightly so, because we've turned away from him, but we're also enslaved, and what that slavery looks like is gratifying our own desires, right? What Martin Luther called the inward curvature of the soul. We're all afflicted with this inward curvature of the soul. We're about self-protection. We're about making sure that what we want is what happens, right? That's the mess. And, and it's a mess that connects to the culture we live in, of course. It did, it's not because of the culture, but the, the times we live in, the stories that we experience give shape to our sin. 
We're all born with this inward curvature of the soul, but the way we hide and the things that we seek to gratify our lusts and our longings can be different. What's driving you towards relationships? It's a really important question to ask. Okay, we're doing a series on gospel-driven relationships, but it's an important question. Why do you want to have relationships? And you know why you need to ask that question and think about that question? Is because eventually every relationship you're in will become difficult. And at that point, you will do a cost-benefit analysis. Is it still worth it? And I'll just tell you, college is one of the times where you can make really bad calculations about that. You know why? Because it's easy to give up on people and find a new group of friends. You can do it, right? But when you get to be 25 and 26, there's not all these people around like there is right now. And if you don't learn to have a bigger reason to be in relationship than just it helps my loneliness or it serves me in this way, if you don't learn how to persevere, how to seek relationships for a bigger purpose than the way it serves you, you will not do well in this life. This vision here is a bigger purpose than just, I'm lonely, I have lust, I want the approval of other people. There are all kinds of reasons that we can seek after relationships, that th- reasons that can make us even go out of our way seeking after relationships, right? But eventually, eventually, we're going to have to ask ourselves, is what I'm getting in this relationship really worth what it costs? And you may actually be haunted by this question. Are the people I'm in relationship doing the same thing? right? Because it happens both ways. And maybe some of you in this room have experienced that pain. I imagine you probably have of somebody else deciding that you weren't worth the cost. That's the mess that we're in. And it makes us all afraid and it makes us actually grasp even more and end up choking the thing that we're hoping will give us life. Pursuing relationships or what they get you is destructive. Feeling like you're always having to audition is exhausting. It's one of the greatest things we fear, right? And we're right to fear it because everybody in this room does it. Unless there's something bigger going on. There's this book by Don Miller that I really like. It's his second book, not Blue Like Jazz, but it was a book called Searching for God Knows What. Not nearly as popular. He's got this great sto- illustration in there about how when he was in elementary school, they decided to do like a, a values clarification lesson. Let's clarify what your values are, okay? And the way they did this was they proposed this little thought experiment. Imagine you're in a lifeboat in the middle of the sea, and there's like a mom and a doctor and a lawyer and you, and one of the people has to be thrown out of the lifeboat. Convince the rest of those people that you deserve to be in the lifeboat. Now, it's easy. That's pretty easy, right? Because everybody's going to throw the lawyer out, right? (laughs) But why do you deserve to stay in the lifeboat? I suspect some of you are like, your first impulse is, I'm not sure I really do. 
Like, let's be honest. Some of us, you're like, well, of course, you know, wouldn't be a party if I wasn't there. But others are like, I'm really not adding anything, right? Neither one of those answers are what God made you for, right? Neither one of those answers are what God made you for. But we're always trying to convince others and ourselves that we deserve to be in the lifeboat. That's the mess we're in. And it's so far removed from the biblical understanding of what relationships are about. So the question is, how can the Christian community become a different countercultural place? And here's the answer, and this is where we're going to go through the rest of Ephesians tonight. Only if our relationships are driven by something bigger than what benefits me, and only if we are loved by someone who loves me for more than what I can bring to the table. Only if someone exists who's not doing a cost-benefit analysis on you. And unfortunately, a lot of us have, have, have been taught that maybe you're saved to serve, which means basically the point of you being saved is so you can become God's little worker bee. Do you know what this passage says? It doesn't say that. It does say that there were good works created for you to be done, right? But notice, don't pass over this really important part. The mess we're in, the salvation that comes, and then the way God boasts about his children. I love it. Let's, let's dig into this. First, but God. The gospel, if you, if you want to know what is the gospel in shorthand, seal this on your heart. The gospel is God to the rescue. I don't know if you've ever heard this illustration of, you know, the gospel is like you're out in the, in the ocean and you're, you're, you're drowning. You're like going down for the third time and, and you're just about dead. And then Jesus throws you a life preserver, but you still have to grab it. You ever heard that illustration? It's not in the Bible. What the Bible says, Ephesians 2, is you're already dead. You're on the bottom of the ocean floor. But what grace is, is Jesus tearing off his robes, diving in, pulling you up by the scruff of your neck and breathing new life into you. If you would ask the Apostle Paul, what is grace? Grace is not God giving you a helping hand. Right? Grace is God making dead people alive. Now, I know that raises all kinds of questions and whatnot, but get that. If you don't get that, then you're always going to be doing a cost-benefit analysis in your relationship with God. See, if God is the one who made you alive when you were dead, then he has a right to ask you to do anything, even loving other people in the church that you don't like, because that's what church is about so much of the time. There's no cost-benefit analysis that you can ever do with God because he paid the ultimate cost. And you owe him everything. So if you undercut the bigness of grace, you end up, it's like putting a hole in your tire. You may last for a little while. If you've got those really fancy tires, you might even go, what, 20, 50 yards. After that Olympic you know, lady shoots your tire with an arrow, right? But eventually that tire is going to go flat. Eventually, the Christian life is going to wear you out, especially if you think, does God really have the right to ask me to do this? Does God really have the right to ask, tell me what I can do with my body? Does God really have the right to tell me who I should love? Well, he does if you were dead and he made you alive. 
But if you kind of gave him a helping hand by inviting him into your heart, like he's this poor, pathetic savior who's just hoping you'll give him a chance, well, you undercut what the whole Christian life is about. And that's what Paul's saying here. Like, you need to understand grace is bigger than you thought. You, are, you were saved by something way bigger than you thought. Right? It's also good news for those who are like, I'm too far beyond the reach of God. Because <laughs> dead is dead. Right? Dead is dead. And God delights in making dead people alive. Right? But God also loves to show off his delight in his children. Now, you guys need to hear this. Because I think a lot of us are like, yeah, I know that Jesus died for me, and that's cool, but I bet if he had to do it over again, he might not want to do that. Because I've been such a disappointment to him. You ever feel like that? If you're honest? You need verses 6 and 7. This is what he says. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why? Well, look what it says, verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show, or some translations say demonstrate, the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God wants to show off his incomparable grace by raising us up into the heavenlies and saying, look at my, look at my guy, look at my girl. Tony Campolo, pastor, um, great speaker, he uh, used to say this, that God is like a Jewish grandmother. And every time you get around him, he wants to just kind of break open, look at these pictures of my kids, right? Is that how you think about God? Do you think that God just can't wait to show off pictures of his kids to the angels. And the angels are like, come on, we've seen this before. No, 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 look, look at her, look at her, look at him. That's what he's saying here. God's purpose is not just to save us, to make us alive. It's to make us alive so he can show us off for the coming ages. And doesn't that, doesn't that find its, its fulfillment there in the book of Revelation? With every race, tribe, tongue, and nation, this glorious host that we sang about that streams in. That's why I mentioned Christopher Tolkien, because it's this image at the end of the Lord of the Rings, the coronation of the true king, who's known because he has the hands of a healer and he bears the sword that was broken but has now been reforged. In other words, he will bring justice and he will bring healing and make all things new. That's this vision, and it's a glorious vision. You just want to weep when you think about it. God is excited about what he's done. He is. He loves to show off his delight in his children. But God didn't just save us so we could go to heaven when we die. He saved us to create one new humanity. Look at verse 11. Again, look at the therefore. The therefore links it. 1 through 10, what God has done in the gospel leads to this. Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that is the Jews, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. In other words, if you don't know God, if you're not in relationship with him, you are without hope. You may not know it but it's true. You may be able to mask it or hide it. 
You may be like Woody Allen. He was asked one time, what do you believe in? He said, I believe in the power of distraction. The power of distraction can take you a long way. But you were made for more. You were made for more, right? You were made for God. And you were made to be part of one new humanity. Now, here's the interesting thing. There's this wordplay going on here. Because you're not sure at times, is he talking about Jews and Gentiles who hated each other? Or is he talking about sinful man and God? Who's he saying gets reconciled together through this peace that Christ has wrought? And the answer is both. Because God is not in the business of just saving individuals. He's in the business of creating one new humanity. As a matter of fact, in the next chapter in Ephesians, Paul says that this was the mystery that has now been revealed. Do you know that the word mystery in the Bible does not refer to things that are mysterious? It doesn't. The mystery the Bible talks about is something that was hidden but's now been revealed. And here it is, that God has always been about making one community, one new humanity. And that's it. And the point of Jesus reconciling Jews and Gentiles to one another is through Christ, they also come together. Think of it like a pyramid, that if you're here and you're here and you can't stand each other, but when you're brought to Christ, you're brought together. That's the picture here. In other words, community is God's idea. He made it. And it took a lot of effort. Like for him to create the world, all he had to do was speak. But to create this new humanity, he had to suffer a torturous death and die. But he did it. He did it, right? Relationship with God brings us into this community. Marva Dawn, a Lutheran theologian, I love her. She says this, community is a gift. We don't have community because we're good at building community. Isn't that good, to news? Yeah? We don't have community because we're good at building community, but because God has created it. The world teaches us to build community among the people we like, but God drops us in a community with people we can't stand. And if you don't think that that's a good idea, well, then you don't like what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he says it's the diversity that makes us this special community. Now, the marketers will tell you it's easier to build a church by just going after people that are all alike and all like each other. But that's never been God's idea. It's never been God's idea. So you better develop a taste for it now because it's what's coming. It's a community that God is committed to building. All right. Well, relationship with God also gives us an identity as a people. Do you see all that? We didn't know who we are. We were foreigners and strangers, but now we're fellow citizens. Here's what Paul does. All the things in the Greco-Roman world that you would have used to say, this is who I am and this is why I matter, he says in the gospel, they're all deconstructed and reconstructed. Being a citizen, a Roman citizen was a big deal. Not everybody had that privilege. It was a special privilege given for various reasons. But Paul says it doesn't matter. You are now citizens in God's kingdom. And beyond that, you're members of his household. You're his children. 
you're also part of this building, this new temple with Jesus as the cornerstone. This whole building that joins together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. A dwelling place. God lives by his spirit. Right? We're made a community to glorify God. To beautify, to ornament, if you will, his plan. To show it to people. You know, here's the thing. C.S. Lewis said one time in his book, The Four Loves, that friendship has to be about something. Community has to be about something, too. You can't find community just by looking for community. What Lewis says about friendship, I think, is true of community. Friends, you know you found a friend when you see something, and they see it, too, and you're like, ah, do you see it? Yes, I see it, too. That's the basis for friendship. It's also the basis for community in the church. Do you see it? Do you see this grand and glorious vision, right? Um, Leslie Newbigin, great um, missiologist, said that the church is that one organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Yeah. The church has a purpose, right? To beautify the gospel for God to be able to show off his unspeakable kindness, but also to demonstrate to the watching world that there is a new way to be human. A new way to be human that's not based upon what we contribute. It's not based on how great we are. It's based on how beautiful the one who's rescued us is. Right? It's a good thing that community is not based at our proficiency at building it. Or it's not built on our works, because we're just not very good at community. And, and here's the thing, if you think you're good at community, look out. <laughs> because it's like Dan Allender, a great Christian counselor, said one time, that it's the most annoying thing to be loved by people that think they're really good at loving. <laughs> it's way better to be loved at people that think they've got a long way to go, you know. I'll tell you, I, I, I kind of hate this series because I feel like I don't have any right to stand up here at all any week, right? That's why it's such good news that God is the one who's built this community. He doesn't just say, hey, here's a good idea. Why don't you guys get to it? No, he said, live out of what I've made you. That's a way different thing. This is why, you know, the Christian Sabbath begins the week. Do you understand that? Like, you begin with resting in who God has made you to be, and then you live out of that. So rather than saying, boy, we need to be reconciled, we have been reconciled, but we need to live like it. We need to look like it. Because that's our purpose. That's our future. So you better start to enjoy it now. As one of my professors in seminary used to say, Heaven is an acquired taste. And you learn to acquire that taste now, here, by being called to be this community that God has made. Not because it serves you well. It might actually make your life more difficult. Do you realize that? I don't know what somebody told you. So many people get told when you become a Christian, it'll make your life better. It may actually make your life harder. It really might. 
I would never tell you that being a Christian will make your life easier. It may not. It really may not. But it's worth it because you were dead and he made you alive. He's praising his kindness via you for all the ages to come. And he's committed to making this beautiful new humanity out of every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. Can you catch that vision? Can you pray for that? Can you long for that? Can you weep for the places where we don't see it? Let's pray together.